uh, read to us Romans 8. Um, and yeah, we'll stand for just a moment here to uh, as we read God's word. I'm going to read, there's a lot listed here, and I'm not going to preach on all of this, but I'm going to read again uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30. If you want to look at 31 through 34, that's what we covered last week. And then I'll pick up at verse 35 to the end of the chapter, and that's what I'll preach on. So uh, would you please stand once more? Sorry to make you go up and down and up and down all the time. Uh, I'm going to read starting at the top of, of the page here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Skip with me now to the paragraph break. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can have a seat. So, uh, some of you might have heard this term ex-evangelical or ex-Christian. Um, these are kind of like hashtaggy kind of words um, that people are using on the internet to talk about their experience of leaving the church as they leave the Christian faith. Um, when I read through some of these stories, I searched the hashtag this, uh, this last week and in preparing uh, to answer this question, who can separate you from the love of Christ? Who can separate you from the love of Christ? If you remember last week, we went through a series of questions. Here's one more question. It's the last one in the series. I read a sampling of these stories, and many of them began with an upbringing in the church and then went on to find ways that their religion of their childhood was somehow out of step with the world. Or maybe it was ethically or philosophically contradictory, that there were problems with the Christian religion. But here's the interesting thing about almost every one of these stories. I didn't find any without this. They always told the story of some precipitous big life event that caused everything to unravel. They had their, uh, their story straight in terms of what they thought was wrong with Christianity, but it always included, for some reason, a story of hardship, an occasion of abuse, the death of a loved one, a divorce. It was always something hard. It was a life experience, though. And it seemed that all of these things had, in essence, separated them from the love of Christ. Terrible things can and do happen to Christians. What's going to happen when you face those hard things? Do you know? Are you sure? 
Does it scare you sometimes to think about what you might do when the worst comes your way? I might have asked myself this question. When I face hardship, even when I'm redeemed, what is the point? What's the point of my faith if I'm still facing hard things? Does my suffering have any meaning or purpose? Or is it just random? Is it arbitrary? And if my suffering doesn't have any meaning, then does my faith have any meaning? Or maybe in a, in a different way, you may have drawn a line that says, if God allows this thing to happen to me, I don't know, I might not still continue being a Christian. <clears throat> there might be a circumstance in your life that causes you to doubt that God is really loving you, that God is worth it, that God is even real at all. So again, let's restate the question. What shall separate you from the love of Christ? Or, or maybe better put, who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Well, Paul, in this text, he brings up a lot of examples. You can see them uh, right in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Boom, 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 boom. There's a lot of things, a lot of circumstances, like famine and sword. But he's also talking about the inward struggle that comes along with these things. You know, some translations use the word distress as in this kind of persistent, inescapable stress. And you know, last Sunday we talked about Romans who were actually being condemned and put to death for their faith. And, and thankfully, 21st century America, that isn't really happening. We're not being put to death for our faith. But that doesn't mean that we don't need this passage, right? The idea of nakedness, for instance, which is listed uh, here, it comes with it this idea of public shame or vulnerability, Right? Yeah, that's definitely a possibility for us today. Famine carries with it the idea of, of not having all of your needs met, right? And I, I can definitely say from personal experience, there's the real threat and possibility of overdrawing your bank account, right? Or not having all your bills paid at the end of the month. So this passage, even though it was definitely for Christians in Rome in the first and second centuries, for their literal survival, it also has bearing and weight for us today. When we are tempted to doubt and struggle against our faith because God has given us more trouble than we can manage. That's what this text is for. Okay, so we have this list. And it's interesting to me that none of these things that Paul lists actually has any spiritual power to separate us from Christ. Right? Isn't it interesting? Famine and swords, they can't separate us from God on their own, right? Because our relationship to God is spiritual, and famine and sword are physical things. Swords can't cut salvation, right? Of course they can't. And you can't starve a soul just by starving it of food. So I think the who in this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, might actually be ourselves. Might be talking about us. Will you, what will you do personally when you face these serious troubles as a Christian? Can you stand up to hardship and stand firmly in the love of Christ? Well, I want to proceed forward by, by separating our responses to hardship into three 
categories, three categories. One is going to be the non-faithful response or the response of a non-Christian. And then interestingly, there are going to be two Christian responses. You might have heard sermons where they're like, here are two bad ways and here's one good way. I'm going to give one bad way and two Christian ways to respond to hardship. Okay? So option one, the non-Christian way. This is to abandon the faith and stop trusting in God because things are too hard. It doesn't provide for you. Your faith is not doing what you hoped it would. And in one respect, I want to have, I want to have an, uh, a little bit of respect for this viewpoint. Because I can definitely wrap my head around that mindset. Right? I can put myself in the shoes of this type of a person. I can't continue to grapple with this level of hardship. I can't understand the meaning of why things are hard. I don't understand why I'm having to go through this. And if there's no point to suffering, then there's no point to my faith in God if I'm going to be suffering anyways. What does God do for me might be the question of this person. And this actually seems to be the conclusion of a lot of those stories that I mentioned at the beginning. That all of these ex-evangelicals and ex-Christians, you read of these stories and they're just saying, it's not worth it. It doesn't provide for me what I want it to. And for all of us, if we just strictly looked out the window, looked at the world, and tallied up all of the injustices that we see, and all of the hardship and suffering that we see, all of the sin that we see, or all of the natural things like diseases, cancer, drought, famine, fires that are spreading, which we read about in the news. Maybe it's more personal. It's the death of a loved one. It's some form of abuse. You too might lean towards doubting that God's promise of blessing can ever really apply to you. That God either isn't there or else he's asleep at the wheel, right? And you don't really want to believe in him anymore. But there's a forgotten problem with this mindset of doubting God. So here's, here's a problem with this viewpoint. What does this mindset leave you with? It doesn't leave you with more understanding and meaning of your hurt. It unfortunately leaves you with meaninglessness, meaningless suffering, empty pain. You substitute a negative claim about God, but, but you don't really give a new reason to your suffering. You just make it seem more random. Your situation doesn't get better when you give up your faith in God. So I'm going to share the perspective of, of two authors. They're both kind of philosophers and theologians. So not everybody in every room, and I, I, I grant this, is a theologian. But stick with me because I think it, it really well encapsulates what it looks like when you give up faith in God. Okay? This is a man named Richard Dawkins. Um, he's, he's a self-professed atheist. He's part of this new atheist movement. Um, and, and here's what he writes in his book, River Out of Eden. He's a Darwinist, I should also mention. Um, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic repl replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it. Nor any justice. 
The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. You see, Dawkins, he's trying to criticize Christianity, but what he replaces faith with is a view of the world that has no meaning, no justice. There can't be justice. There can't be virtues. There can't be purpose, and there can't be hope. How does that sound? Do you want to live in that kind of a world? Do you see how that sounds worse than having faith in, in the true God? But even that, that's a little bit abstract. I'm talking about things like virtues and justice. Um, and it's good to talk in these philosophical categories, I think, um, of good and evil and the meaning of life. But let me take a different example. Here's a guy named Dr. Yuval Harari. Um, he wrote a book called Sapiens. Think like Homo sapiens. Like he's talking about the human race and the human condition. Um, and here's his take on existence apart from God. Uh, here's his quote. If we do not believe in the Christian myths about God creation and souls what does it mean that people are equal he's going to question this idea of equality okay evolution he says is based on difference differences not equality every person carries a somewhat different genetic code and is exposed from birth to different environmental influences and this leads to the development of different qualities that carry with them different chances of survival so let, let me uh, try to uh, rephrase that. He's basically saying that equality of human beings, right, that all races and ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses are equal, that actually is false without Christianity. That it requires God to think of people as equal. There's no equality that belongs to people, he's saying, in, when you take away God from his creation. But he goes on. Listen to this. This is, this is uh, maybe heartbreaking or terrifying, depending on how you look at it. Unfortunately, the sapiens regime, or talking about humans, unfortunately, humans on earth so far has produced little that we can be proud of. Yikes. We have mastered our surroundings, increased food production, built cities, established empires, and created far-flung trade networks. But did we decrease the amount of suffering in the world? Here's his answer. Time and again, massive increases in human power did not necessarily improve the well-being of individual sapiens or humans. And actually caused immense misery to other animals. Humans are self-made gods with, the on, with only the laws of phys physics to keep us company. We are accountable to no one. Whoa, that's a really horrifying view that we've built all these cities, but we've actually caused more harm along the way. That we're worse off because we keep hurting each other. He's saying that humans have actually gotten better at inflicting harm over time. And you know what he says uh, we have to answer for it? We have nothing to answer and we have nobody to be accountable to. There can't be justice for all this harm that's been done. There's going to be no righting of the wrongs in the end. There will just be physics and us. We just have physics to keep us company. Whew. It's a frightening viewpoint that if we and our works are nothing more than just, just material, then the moral arc of the universe is not bent towards justice, like 
Martin Luther King Jr. once claimed. It's saying that, that cancer cells are actually just as reasonable in their existence as human beings are. They're just another thing in the universe. And that racism is just going to be an ongoing feature of the biological process of differentiation. And that it's going to be survival of the fittest over and over again. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying this to, just to rile us up against the atheists. Let's go battle the atheists. But these viewpoints of, of Richard Dawkins and Yuval Harari, those, those two men are also created in the image of God. And they probably go home and they say, I love you to their wives, even though they would say that love is maybe just a, a chemical reaction designed to propagate our species. It sounds very loving when you tell that to your wife, right? I, ha- I have a chemical reaction inside me that's designed to propagate our species. Doesn't sound very romantic to me, but uh, I don't think that's actually what they mean. I think they actually do love their spouses. Isn't that interesting? So they can't possibly live as though their viewpoints are true. So what I'm, the reason I'm bringing this up is actually just to disarm unbelief. It's not rejecting something false. They're not, like, they're not uh, dismantling a myth. Unbelief, all you're doing is just rejecting things that are true about our world. The categories like love exist, that justice is real. And we can say that it's real because we know that God is real. So, so to believe in God alone, even in the midst of our hardship, is to have meaning in every aspect of our lives. It means even the suffering and the hardship has a meaning as well. And that it shouldn't separate us from the love of God. Jesus Christ himself, he's not cold and he's not unfeeling like the chaos of evolutionary chance. He isn't, he isn't rigid like the laws of physics are. He's a sympathizer with your pain. And he's one who says, you're not alone. I'm here with you. So anybody who has or is going through pain right now knows the significance of not doing it alone. Right? We all know how different it is to have somebody with us. And that's a big deal. But Jesus goes further and and, uh, this, this is a striking image. Jesus goes further and says, I agree this hardship is awful. In fact, it's so awful that I have to come and suffer and die to do something about it. It's this sad feature of all these ex, ex-Christian stories that I'm talking about. Uh, they, they mention the church and Christian leaders and call them out over and over and over again, but I didn't find one who said, I had a genuine relationship with Jesus who came alongside me in my hardship. Right? So it, it, it can feel like, like Jesus is far off in the midst of our suffering, but he isn't. He's not far off. He suffered as well. And if you are here at church today, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, and you've never considered that Christ offers you legitimate meaning and redemption in your life, and that it's free to jump into this category of salvation, I would love to talk to you later and maybe even hear your disagreements with me. That's fine too, but I'd love to just chat with you maybe over, over lunch later. Okay, so that's option one. Option one, and that's probably the longest one, but it's to, it's to reject God because you see too much suffering. And I've just proven why that's not actually a better solution. Okay, so now I have two more uh, options when you face suffering and hardship. 
And they're both Christian responses, okay? So option two is to, is to endure this hardship, endure this trouble, and this per- persecution and all these different things, the famine and the sword and the nakedness, all the while being really unsure and kind of timid and fearful. Is this thing going to break your faith? I can keep going a little bit more. Hmm. Let me be clear that this is a Christian response, okay? Interesting. I'll get, I'll get to this more. But you can go as a Christian through life doubting whether the love of Christ is really there for you. You can have doubts and still be a Christian. Okay? It, it means you might wonder if God could still love you in the midst of your hardship and your circumstance. It, it might mean you, you question if, if your faith is worth it in the end. And you might have that list that I talked about uh, where you, you've got several things that might separate you from the love of Christ. Maybe this is what your list could look like. It means uh, you have a stumbling faith and you have doubts about the church or about the way other Christians have acted. You might have doubts because you have these repeated sins that you can't seem to overcome. You might... uh, be fearful because of the shame from the exposure of a hidden sin. Or maybe you're trying to cover up that sin. You might have big-time disappointment in your parents who claim to be Christians but hurt you in deep ways. You might uh, fear other kids at school not liking you. You might fear about your faith because your desires for something wrong won't go away. Sometimes saying, I believe on a Sunday, doesn't keep that doubt from coming back on Monday. And many will live their entire lives as a Christian, hanging on for dear life, just white-knuckling it, scared that there's going to be some final straw. I don't know, could this be the day that I give up my faith? I'm not sure. And it's interesting, our our Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the the document kind of that uh, states the, the Reformed belief of what the Bible teaches, okay? So this is a document written hundreds of years ago in the 1640s, okay? And this is a summary of the Christian faith, and it it seems to recognize that people are going to have doubts, okay? Here's what it says. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. What that's saying is that assurance of your faith is not always felt. You don't always feel assured of your faith. But it's always there waiting. It's always there underlying your entire life. And here's the funny thing. Even when you are doubting, it's actually the thing that's sustaining you in ways that you can't even tell. 
your faith is stronger than you think because you didn't choose your faith to begin with. It was the grace of God that chose you. Right? your, Your Christianity is not due to the strength of your faith, but the thing you have faith in. The strength of your faith comes from Jesus. It wasn't you who chose God, but God who chose you. Option three, this is the last option, is to receive assurance. To be bold and confident in the scriptures. And this is the category that Paul himself fits into. Okay, Notice in verse 38, um, he says he's convinced, I am sure. He's confident. This is an act of faith, and it's, it's a trusting posture. And what he's heard, and what he's seen, and what he knows to be true. He's not just trying to explain facts as though this is a math equation. Do these things, and then you'll, you'll be assured. He himself has had to believe in this stuff, right? He's had stones thrown at him over and over again. He's had to trust and believe in Jesus. It's easy to see by his own life circumstances that he suffered, suffered pretty much everything on this list. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. But yet he's convinced. Okay, and that's option three. That's this third viewpoint. And it's, I, I find it interesting to see that Paul has no special sauce. Yet there's no like special ingredient which, which everyone in this room doesn't have. What does Paul know that has him so convinced, and why can't we be just as convinced? And this is his answer. You are not the source of your salvation. I wish I could have read the entire book of Romans up until now. That'd take a little bit longer. We might be here uh, well past lunchtime. Uh, But his point in writing the entire book of Romans is that you are not the source of your salvation. God is. Your strong faith is not what gives you new life. Christ gives you new life. You aren't too weak because the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul says early in Romans 8. When you have a relationship to Jesus, there's no such thing as unbearable circumstances as we've been talking about these last two weeks. Even in our worst circumstances, as it says in verse 28 at the top of our page here, God God works all things together for good for those who love him. In all of these things that I've been talking about, the the operator is not you. You are not the subject of the sentence. It's God who is, right? God is the one who's at work. Paul knows your security does not come from within you. Your security comes from outside of you. You point to something external to yourself for your salvation, This third option, it's actually a possibility for all Christians. But let's go back to option two. I just want to be clear. Option two, full of your questions, full of your doubts, full of your uncertainty and and insecurity. You still have that security because even there, the the point is not your own faith and the strength of your own faith. The, The point is Jesus, right? And his obedience to the cross. God's love for you is not contingent upon your unwavering faith and your lack of doubts. That's why I can say that both options two and three are Christian viewpoints because both of them still have security in Jesus Christ. 
both options will say this, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? And Jesus works with that. Jesus works with that every time. But there's one, one thing in the text that, that still doesn't explain yet, okay? Uh, how in the world can we be described, like in verse 7, 37, sorry, verse 37, that we are more than conquerors? Because right now I'm, I'm still just talking about like how we face into our doubts. But Paul is saying we are more than conquerors? I don't feel like a conqueror. Man, oh man, that's a pretty strong word. It's almost like uh, in life sometimes it feels like it's your first time water skiing and you're just like clinging to that rope for everything you're worth and you're just being dragged along the surface of the water. Just, you're being bumped over and over again, knocked down, and you try to get back up until somebody pulls you back in the boat. But Paul's saying, no, you're a conqueror. You're an expert water skier. What? We are not conquerors alongside all these challenges. It's not like once we overcome these hurdles, then we become conquerors. That's not the point. It's not once you separate yourself from these things, but in these things. Note, as it says in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Okay, so let's talk about that. Sometimes it's, our faith is the opposite of what we'd expect. God uses all things to work together for good, like it said in verse 28, including the death of his only son. It's totally subverting the world to say that through death, Jesus overcame death. Even the worst things that we can possibly imagine work together for the good of those who love him. And in a similar way, this is, this is the, the point that Paul is making, in a similar way with our own trouble, with our own hardship and persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, God can and is using those very things to bring about his good purposes. He's using your own suffering to bring about the conquering of all the world. Every Christian who endures all these hard things and then, and then says, blessed is the name of the Lord, you are a part of bringing the kingdom of God. You are subverting the powers of pain and suffering and of death by worshiping Christ through those things. You are showing death and pain who is boss. Right? And, and don't hear me minimize, minimizing and saying those things are, are, are inconsequential and not that big of a deal. Right? Hear me saying that those, those hardships that you face, they're not in vain. They're not purposeless. They're not empty. It's not wasted. Those hardships are real and it's hard. And that's exactly what makes them matter to God. Let's talk about the end of the story, the end of all human history, because it, it, will, mean, it, will, it will explain what it means to be a conqueror. What is a conqueror? In Revelation chapter 5, Revelation being kind of the, the book talking about the end of all things, Christ is seen as a lamb, right? And he's a lamb who is standing as though he had been slain. All those around him fell down and worshipped him. Think what a lamb looks like when it has been slain. It doesn't look pretty, right? It's not something to really like cherish and look at. It's probably bloody. But everything still fell down and worshipped him. 
And soon after that, the seven seals were opened. And, and, then, and then he's seen again in, verse, uh, in chapter 6, verse 2. And it says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. This is what it means to be a conqueror. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, as it says in verse 36. But our faith is in the lamb who was slain. We wish we felt more like conquerors. I I sure wish I felt more like a conqueror. But we're in union with the one who has conquered all the world through his death. And we are more than conquerors when we face our hardships trusting in him. He turned death against itself. Christ's hardship was not the end for him. His His death led to a resurrection. And if you're in him, then your end result too is in victory and there's nothing, nothing, yourself included, that can separate you from his love. Let's pray. Father God, we we praise you that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And though he um, was despised and rejected, Um, And we did not regard him. We took no account of him. Yet he conquered by flipping the script and saying, no, death, you're not going to have the final word. Uh, He was raised to life, even though he had been dead. And in so doing, he he overthrew the powers of of pain and suffering and of death itself and of sin. Um, And God, when we are united to you in your son, then we too are conquerors. We're more than conquerors through all the hardships that we face as well. God, this is what it means to be in union with your son. And and we're so grateful for it that you have uh, reached out to us and united us to yourself so that even the hardest things can do nothing but proclaim your kingdom. Because as we continue to worship you, God, we too thwart the powers of, of, of suffering, of hardship, of doubt, um, and God, we, we make you known by being sufferers in your name. Uh, God, we, uh, we love you for this salvation, and we thank you for letting us have a window into the end of all things where Jesus will return, uh, certainly showing himself as a slain lamb, and yet also as a, as a conquering victor, um, that it was this lamb who was slain that is also going to uh, slay all his enemies, um, and, and win the day at the very end. And God, we're going to stand vindicated and confirmed at those points. Um, and we are going to, uh, I, I like to think of the, of the wedding supper that you're going to uh, host for us as kind of a movie theater where we're going to be replaying our lives and looking at all the hardships and then just showing how each one of them pointed to the good that you were bringing about through those things. Um, I can't wait to see that, God. We all can't wait to see that. The things we're facing right now right now, today. We're going to watch those things on replay and be like, look at God go. Look at what he did then, but look how he brought those things to proclaim his own glory through me. It's amazing, Father. Um, So send us out uh, from here with, with security and with assurance in our faith, knowing that it is not in ourselves that we trust, but it's in you that we trust. It's in your son and in his, and his death and resurrection on our behalf. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Well, let's uh, stand and sing together in light of these things, the song In Christ Alone. In Christ alone my hope is found He is my light, my strength, my song This cornerstone, this solid ground Firm through the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are stilled, when striving cease My by all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, stored by the ones he came to save, till on that Died. The wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground His body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in the grave he rose again and as he stands in victory since curse has lost his grip on me for I am his and he is mine bought with the precious blood of Christ no guilt in life no fear in power of Christ in me, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, no power of hell, no scheme of man, can ever pluck me from his hand, till he returns, or calls me home. Amen. Hallelujah. Go ahead and have a seat.